Welcome to Ancient Heroes. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. In today's episode, I got to speak to renowned archaeologist and historian Eric Klein, who's one of the top people in his field and has been featured in documentaries on the BBC, National Geographic, the History Channel, and many others. His talks are very popular on YouTube, and he wrote the influential book 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed. And that's one of the subjects of of today's conversation. We talk about the mysterious fall of many of the ancient world's greatest societies and cultures in the 12th century BC and what really happened. We also talk about the truth behind some of the most famous myths of all time, including the Trojan War and the Achilles and some of the other Greek heroes. So it's just a fascinating conversation. I hope you agree. And as always, you can find more information about the subjects we discuss in the show notes, links, everything like that at ancientheroes.net. So let's jump right in. Welcome to Ancient Heroes. I'm here with Professor Eric Klein. Um, Professor Klein is, uh, he teaches classics and anthropology uh, at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and he is the director of the Capitol Archaeological Institute there as well. Uh, Professor Klein is the author or editor of 20 books on ancient history, including on the collapse of the Bronze Age and the history of the Trojan War, which we'll be talking about today. And uh, I first came across your work, Professor, on YouTube when I was uh, starting to research a little bit about the end of the Bronze Age. It's been something I've been uh, starting to look into and familiar with for a while, uh, but I wanted to do a deep dive and I came across your YouTube talk uh, which I think is the same name as your book about the subject, which is 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed. And first of all, it's an incredible talk. And yeah, uh, all listeners out there, I highly recommend checking that out. Um, one thing that was amazing to me was that it had 5 million views on YouTube or over 5 million, which is, I mean, you rarely see those kinds of numbers when you're looking for you know archaeological stuff. And so it really blew my mind. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in this. And I'm happy to say that uh, I did go ahead and uh, uh, buy your book on Amazon last night. So I'm super excited about that. That should be coming in the mail soon. Um, Although it sounds like you have another edition coming out as well. So is there anything I'm leaving out as far as introductions go? No, that's pretty much it. Uh, You've covered it. And thank you for having me on. It's uh, Always fun to talk about this stuff. And yeah, like you, I'm blown away by the number of views of that particular lecture. I mean, 5 million people watching the collapse of the late Bronze Age. You know, my inner self is overjoyed that that many people are watching it. But my outer self is like, I guess people have nothing to do. They're all inside during pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll also say it's, it's pretty cool, too, because you know, these days, so many videos and things that have those kinds of views are, you know, three minutes long or something like that. Whereas your talk, I think was over an hour. And I watched the whole thing, and I'm going to be watching it again. And when I was reading through the comments, it was clear that, uh, you know, all the people commenting had watched the entire thing as well. And it just was spectacular. I'm sure it was just kind of a, a little bit of a summary of the book. So I'm like, yeah, it's, um, it is a summary of the book. In fact, it's, whittling down to really just the first and the last chapters of the book because the whole middle part of the book is about what collapsed. So I actually talk about the Mycenaeans. I talk about the Hittites. I talk about Mycenaeans, Assyrians, Babylonians, all those guys, so that when you get to the end of the book, you can um, 
basically you can appreciate what it was that we lost when it collapsed. But of course, we don't exactly know why the collapse happened. It's one of history's great mysteries. So um, I kind of felt like at the beginning of the book, I introduced it. And then I went, let's take a step back 300 years and see what's going on. And then, you know, the last two chapters are like, okay, now we're all up to speed. Now let's try and figure out what happened. Why did it all collapse? So it's a pretty deep dive in the middle of the book. And some readers are not um, anticipating that. So they kind of get lost. They're like, he's on all sorts of tangents. I'm like, no, actually, it's not a tangent at all. It's very relevant. But so, yeah. Well, and that's, I'd like to kind of touch on some of that context because the Bronze Age civilizations are really fascinating to me. And I don't think, you know, unless someone's taken the initiative to look into this, they may not really be aware of much of what was going on at that time. So can you kind of just give that, you know, quick summary about kind of what, what are we talking about? What time period are we talking about? Uh, what was the Bronze Age and what was going on before we even get to the, the collapse? Um, yeah. <laughs> right. So basically, let's deal with the whole middle part of the book before we get to the ending. Yeah, so you're correct. Most people that study this part of the ancient world, they do ancient Greece, they do ancient Rome, um, and many courses on ancient Greece actually start uh, with the ancient Olympics in 776, and they say, ah, that's when Greek history begins. I and the other people that do late Bronze Age would, so, would say, no, it actually begins earlier, back in the Bronze Age, from an early Bronze Age in this whole area, uh, Greece and the ancient Near East starts at about 3000 BC, which is when bronze is invented. And so you've got 2000 years of culture, 2000 years of civilization uh, that come about before the collapse. And then uh, the Greeks kind of have to um, rebuild, shall we say. But we know from the Linear B text in Greece that they're already worshiping gods and goddesses like Zeus like Poseidon, like Athena. So um, Greek history really does start back in the Bronze Age and the people that are teaching courses that are starting uh, in the Greek Renaissance are leaving out a whole part of it. So um, that's one thing that I and others would like to rectify. Of course, if you're taking a course on the ancient Near East, you probably do have all this background because it uh, follows the same sort of thing. The Bronze Age starts in about 3000, uh, but there you've got all sorts of other civilizations that most people have never heard of, but are, you know, second nature to those of us that study it. So Sumerians, Akkadians, Babylonians, Canaanites, people from Ugarit, you know, these are all names that we kind of just toss off and everybody else is going, wait, wait, who? And then we're like, well, you know, Hittites. They're like, who? We're like Assyrians, Babylonians. And they're like, ah, I've heard of Assyrians and Babylonians. That's like Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm like, no, those are the neo. Those are the new. That's after the collapse. So um, part of my mission, in a way, once I realized how few people out there knew this time period from the third and second millennia BC was to bring it to them, because I think that's one of the most fascinating periods in ancient history but nobody's aware of it. So, you know, for every person like you or the people that watch the video that go by the book, I'm like, great, that's one more person that's been introduced to the wonders of the Bronze Age. 
Well, and so is that to go off of that answer there? I mean, is is the primary reason we don't know more about that time period is that they just weren't writing stuff down as extensively as as you know the the classical Greeks, for instance? Is that the uh, crux of the the reason why we don't know more? No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, they're writing just as much, if not more. The crux of the problem actually is what I would call the compartmentalization of scholarship. That is, you've got people from Europe and everywhere studying the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, uh, and they basically got um, privilege of place. They were prioritized in the universities in England and Europe, uh, in, even in the United States. Now, you've also got people studying the ancient Near East. Uh, and, uh, of course, like in England, when uh, Sir Austin Henry Laird was announcing his discoveries from Mesopotamia and sending back the huge um, statues, you know, of the bulls and the lions with, you know, human-headed, the Lamassu, um, that caught on. They, the British were fascinated by that, uh, and the French, too. But... Uh, I would say priority in our modern culture has been given to the Greeks and the Romans uh, and not to the ancient Near East to our detriment because that's a whole other area that really contributed to Western civilization, if you want to call it that. So uh, my colleagues and I, one of our rallying cries are civilization, Western civilization does not start with the Greeks and Romans. It actually starts back with the Egyptians and the people in the ancient Near East. So once you realize that, once you realize the amount of literature and science, astronomy, mathematics, all of that, you're like, wait, it came from there? I mean, you know, the famous eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth that you find in the Bible, that's actually in Hammurabi's Law Code back in 1800 BC. The story of Noah and the Flood the Sumerians had a story like that back in 2700 BC. Akkadians had it also. Uh, Babylonians had it. Epic of Gilgamesh. You've got Utnapishtim surviving the flood. So once you realize that, you realize that what we've got is a series of transmitted narratives, if you want to put it that way. So the stories of the Sumerians and Akkadians and Babylonians get handed down to the Canaanites and from them to the Israelites. And then we've got eventually the Greeks and Romans getting it as well. So nowadays, a number of scholars have been pointing out the similarities between, say, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it's quite clear that we've got, we are the descendants of all of these civilizations. So it's not, it's not that they didn't write uh, as much. They did as much or more. It's just that we are not as familiar with it and I think that's a gap that needs to be filled in, hence writing this book. Awesome, awesome, interesting. Okay, I had never thought of it that way. Um, is one of my takeaways in watching your talk was about how interconnected and sort of globalized in a way these different cultures were and these different regions were during the Bronze Age, which is pretty surprising because I don't think, I think there's an assumption that the more interconnected and globalized things get, you know, we can't go in reverse, right. you know? And so right. there's this strange thing that happens. And I guess, will you, will you talk a little bit before we get to the kind of the uh, collapse, so to speak, 
about, you know, these, these were really highly advanced uh, big civilizations that were really interconnected. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So if we just zoom in on the Late Bronze Age, which would be from about 1700 BC down to 1200 BC, so you know between 4,000 and 3,000 years ago, that is a period that I've called globalized um, with an asterisk, globalized for its time period, not like today where we're in instant communication with Japan and all that. But back then, an area that would be to put it in modern terms, would be from Italy on the west to Afghanistan on the east. That whole area um, is in contact during the late Bronze Age and in constant contact. They're trading, they're sending diplomats back and forth, they're sending emissaries. Uh, and depending on whether you're in the center or the periphery, you are involved to a greater or lesser extent. And we know this from the writing. So I'll give you a couple of examples. We've got what's known as the Amarna Archive or the Amarna Letters, which are royal correspondence that Amenhotep III and his son, Akhenaten, two pharaohs of Egypt. Uh, Akhenaten may be familiar to some people as the great heretic pharaoh who may or may not have invented monotheism. And that's in the 14th century BC. They've got all these letters that they are writing to the kings of the other great powers, kings of the king of the Hittites, which is up in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, king of Assyria, king of Babylonia, both of them in what is now modern-day Iraq, ancient Mesopotamia. Um, they're writing to the king of Cyprus, which they call Alashia. They're also writing on a lesser level to a series of petty kings in Canaan that owe them allegiance, vassal states, so well, we know the king of Jerusalem, the king of Megiddo, the king of Hatzor, and so on. And these particular letters document trade and economy and life as it was back then with diplomatic, like I mentioned, diplomatic embassies, um, uh, peace treaties, uh, dowries, marrying a daughter to cement a peace treaty. So the Amarna archives um, are one that we've got. Uh, there's also a couple of archives at the port city of Ugarit, uh, which is up in what is now North Syria. And there, from the period of the 14th and 13th uh, centuries into the 12th, we've got the archives of a couple of merchants that were acting both on their behalf and on behalf of the palace. And it has things like sending a ship to Crete. It is bringing back olive oil and grain and wheat, and so on, and the merchant didn't have to pay taxes when it got back. We've also got archives of the Hittites that tell us what's going on up in what is now Turkey. So there's a lot of writing that sheds um, light on this, but we've also got, for instance, from Ugarit uh, and Babylon and elsewhere, we've got the myths, the legends, the epics. Um, we've got all kinds of things. So we can reconstruct the late Bronze Age in particular, very, very well. And it also then sheds light on things like the Trojan War, because the Hittites mention in their records no fewer than four different wars that are fought over a city that they call Wilusa, which is in northwestern Turkey, um, which I and others think is probably Wilios, as the Greeks called it originally. The digamma, the W drops out, it becomes Ilios. And that's the alternate name 
that Homer gives for Troy. So I think we've got things like the Trojan War in the Hittite records. So there is a wealth of information there. The problem is you need to be able to read those languages and not that many people can read them. How many people know Ugaritic? How many people know Akkadian? All right, you know, more know Egyptian, but how many know Hittite? So this is the problem. We've got thousands of tablets sitting in drawers in museums, many of which have not yet been translated since the day they were found. So, you know, there's a whole career out there for people who are able to have the time and the luxury to be taught these ancient languages and then write them, uh, wow. translate them. I had no idea that was the case, that there were all of these tablets that were out there that, are, that haven't been translated. I mean, do you spend any time looking at these kinds of tablets and trying to translate them, or is that something out of scope of what you're researching? Uh, it's a little out of my scope. I learned Akkadian and ancient Greek. Those are my two ancient languages. So I can read like the law code of Hammurabi. I can read the uh, Amarna archive that I just mentioned. I can read the Mari archive, which I mentioned in the lecture uh, with uh, inlaid daggers going back and forth and sandals. Um, but I'm not a specialist. I'm not an Assyriologist. I'm not a linguist. I'm an archaeologist. Right. So I use, I depend on other people to do the translations. You know, when I'm doing it, I'm sitting there with the dictionary going, am I really translating this right? So yeah. uh, it's at the point where I can look at somebody else's and go, yeah, I agree with that. But um, heavily dependent on what we call a Hittitologist and a Syriologist. So, and I was in fact just doing that last night, looking at some translations from the first millennium, the Iron Age, and going, yeah, okay, good. Wow, I'm glad somebody else translated this. So, you know, there are specializations here, uh, and I know my lane and I stay in it, and, but I also know who I can depend on. And right. they're like, oh, you know, so-and-so, yeah, yeah, that's trustworthy. So, okay, yeah, wow. there's stuff out there. Yeah, that's cool. Um, well, so getting now to the, uh, to the end of the Bronze Age, um, what happened? I mean, we had, a, we had these interconnected societies that were having a lot of communication and travel, et cetera, and some of the greatest civilizations of ancient history. And then in some relatively short amount of time, many of them either basically ceased to exist or just were nowhere near the strength they had been. What is your, what is your take? So, excellent question, and, and um, to cut to the chase, we don't know exactly what happened. I can't tell you with 100% uh, definitive answer what went on, but there are a number of um, possibilities, and what I've concluded is that of all the various possibilities that have been suggested, it's probably not one or two, it's probably all of them. I conclude it's a perfect storm. So for instance, we have evidence that there were droughts at that time. We've got the scientific evidence right now. Uh, and in fact, there's been even more that's been found since my book came out in 2014. And that you referred to an updated version that'll be coming out in probably January or February. That is much of what's in the book. It's updated uh, to include all this new data. Uh, we know there were droughts uh, starting about 1250 BC and lasting for 300 or more years uh, that hit what we would today say was Syria, uh, Israel, Cyprus, Egypt, 
Turkey, and even over to Greece on the one hand, and Iraq and Iran on the other. Now, and these are droughts. When you have a drought that lasts for up to 300 years, they're, they're mega droughts. So we've got uh, scientific evidence for that. We have textual evidence that on the heels of the drought came famine. And we've got letters, for instance, from the Hittites, from the people in Ugarit, from and to the Egyptians, asking for aid, asking for ships of grain. Just like we send relief missions today, they were asking for it back then. But we've also got evidence that earthquakes hit some of these cities and destroyed them. <clears throat> and then we've got um, both archaeological evidence and some textual evidence, especially from the Egyptians, that there were invaders. The Egyptians called them the Sea Peoples. And when I was being taught this as an undergrad and a grad student, everybody just said, oh, late Bronze Age, yeah, it was, just, it was the Sea Peoples. They came in and they attacked everything and everything collapsed. Uh, and then as I went on with my studies, I realized it was a little more nuanced. And some people had said, well, actually, maybe in Greece it was a drought. And somebody else said, well, maybe it's an earthquake. And somebody else said, maybe it's this or maybe it's that. And all I did was kind of put them all together and say, well, maybe you're all right. Maybe it's everything. And if you think about it in today's terms, and of course, there's always a danger of putting today back on the past. But still, when we have an earthquake today, frequently lots of people are killed, but it doesn't bring down your civilization. Same thing with drought, same thing with famine. It's very infrequent that an entire culture or civilization goes away um, because of something like that. Uh, and it's not just the late Bronze Age that it happened. People have been arguing like about the Maya. Why did they collapse? And the Harappan civilization in what is now India, why did it collapse? So there's all kinds of possibilities. And I would simply say uh, it was pretty much everything. And that's why it's a perfect storm. And what you get is a domino effect. As one went down, the others went down because it then also amplified. So um, I do think that it was a combination of, um, as my kids would say in reading their books when they were younger, it was a series of unfortunate events. Yeah. <laughs> it's led to the absolute collapse. So, um, and this is where I think that it has um, ripples and warnings for today because I see a lot of the same things around today. And those things led to collapse more than 3,000 years ago. We're not invulnerable. Every civilization in the history of humankind has collapsed, right? You don't see Mycenaeans running around today. So I just basically say, look, word of warning, um, if we see the same things today and we know what happened back then, when maybe we should take steps you know, to ameliorate it now. So yeah, lots of words of warning. And I, but I do think it, it, it is a perfect storm of a lot of different things that happened all at once or in quick and rapid succession. Interesting. It, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've heard this, but it's been explained to me that when a plane crashes, it's usually not just one thing that causes a plane crash. It's like seven or eight different things that have to go wrong. And that's why they're very rare. And so it kind of reminds me a little bit of that, uh, of that concept. And that kind of explains why something like this is so rare because you have to, you know, all this stuff comes together and mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't happen every 20 years or something, but it might happen every thousand years or 500 years or 
you know. Right. I would agree with that. And that's in part two. Think about we we tend to point to say the Roman Empire and the collapse, and that that's a big deal. And what I say in the book is that actually the collapse of the late Bronze Age is as big a deal, but it's 1,500 years earlier. And by the way, there's 1,500 years, give or take, between collapse of late Bronze Age and collapse of Rome. It's been about 1,500 years since the collapse of Rome. So I'm not saying to watch out, but I'm, you know, saying watch out. So, but you're right. It usually takes a whole series of things to go wrong, and that doesn't happen all that often in the grand scheme of things. And the one thing that I would point out that we're not talking about is think how many times civilizations almost collapsed, but were rescued and did not collapse. So we're only talking about the ones that did collapse. I think far more often they were able to rescue themselves. And so I'm actually interested in that too. What about the times when they almost collapsed, but they pull themselves back from the brink. What was it that they did in those cases? And therefore, what was it that they didn't do with the late Bronze Age so that they did collapse? And then the other thing that I uh, brought up a little bit in the revised version and that I'm now looking at more is while they were collapsing, did they know they were collapsing? Like, did one Hittite turn to the other and go, enjoy it while you can, we're not going to be around in 20 years? Or did they have absolutely no concept that their way of life was going away forever? I suspect the usual. Uh, somebody said, somebody I read recently said, there are always people warning of collapse in a society. They're like the Cassandras warning that something's going to happen. Usually they're not listened to until it's too late. And so I think we probably have that in the late Bronze Age too. There are some instances, I would suspect, of people warning that they were going down the tubes, but they weren't listened to until it was too late. And I'm worried we have the same thing going on today. That's, it's when all I can think about ever since I listened to your talk a few few nights ago, you know, I'll see stuff on social media where people are sort of they may not be directly saying things are collapsing, but it's it's kind of like, I can't believe how bad things are getting sort of thing. And you think about the political unrest, the public health problems, the economy, the environmental kind of things getting more extreme environmentally. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, are, are these the people that are like, you know, uh, warning that, that things are collapsing? And I mean, I also wonder in some of these collapses, you know, it might take place over the course of a hundred years or 25, it's in, you know, you can't always see what's happening right. you know, in a human lifespan, you know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Good point. Um, you frequently can't see it because you're in it. You can only see it when you look back. So yeah, the collapse at the end of the late bronze age is what has been called a systems collapse. The whole system collapses and that can take up to a hundred years as I explained in the lecture that you watched. Uh, and as I explained in the book, and same thing here, you know, we don't collapse overnight. It can take decades or a century, but eventually when you look back, the way of life that as you had been living it, you suddenly realize, well, that's completely changed. So the Iron Age is completely different from the Bronze Age back then and in those places, but there's still continuity. So I'm actually working on the sequel to the book right now. It's called After 1177. And it deals with resilience. If you've collapsed, how do you bounce back? 
So what did the Hittites do? What did the Mycenaeans do? What did the Assyrians and Egyptians do? And what I found is that, first of all, it's not as dark an age as people think it is. Again, it's more a matter of they haven't read the literature. They haven't realized what we've been finding in the last 10, 20 years. But also that each of the civilizations responded differently. For example, Hittites, they're wiped out. But a little bit is left in North Syria, which was kind of an arm of their empire. And they hang on as the Neo-Hittites. They're still doing all the Hittite stuff, but they're not Hittites. So not really. Um, they are ruled by a distant descendant of the royal family. But uh, it's kind of like the British Empire. When the British Empire went down, they were still playing cricket and drinking tea in bits and pieces of what had been the empire, even though you didn't have it anymore. Same thing there. Mycenaeans in Greece, Minoans in Crete, they go away almost completely, and Greece has to rebuild. But in other areas, like the Egyptians, they pick up and carry on. They're weakened. The Assyrians, they, they actually hang on for a little while. Then they go down for like 200 years, but then they pop right back up and they conquer the entire Near East. So Cyprus seems to continue on. So I've got now these places that collapsed in the Bronze Age, and we know they collapsed. Life is different. But now I'm putting them into categories of completely went away, um, realigned, reformatted, rebuilt. And each of them, they're basically, I've got eight or nine case studies of what happened in Cyprus, what happened in Greece, what happened in Egypt. Uh, and again, I'm going to be putting in, is there a lesson in here for us today? If we do collapse, if this pandemic and the economic downturn and everything else does lead us to collapse, then what do we do? How do we bounce back? How are we resilient? So again, uh, and I'm obviously colored by the fact that I'm an ancient historian, I do think the past can hold lessons for us in the present as we look towards the future. Because other people have gone through similar types of things before us, and some survived and some didn't. And it would be nice to know what the people who survived did and maybe replicate it and what the people who didn't survive did and not do that again. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. Well, that might be a good sort of transition to talking about more specifically what was going on in Greece. Um, that's, that's kind of been a focus of this podcast so far, although I do plan on branching out into Egypt and a lot of these other cultures that you're talking about. But um, so you were talking about the kind of the categories of collapse what where do you put the Mycenaeans in that? Was that a was that a civilization that completely went away? Um, and what do we know about the Mycenaeans? Well, so in terms of them being there, then going away. I mean, the Mycenaeans are the the main culture, the main civilization on the mainland of Greece from seventeen hundred down to about twelve hundred, give or take, BC. Um, and had I been talking to you ten or twenty years ago, I would have said. They completely collapsed. They went away. There is then a dark age of less social complexity. They forget how to write. They forget how to do great buildings and all that. And they only come back up in the 8th century when they learn how to write again, brought to them by the Phoenicians, uh, and they managed to get their act together again. But it took three centuries 
what I'm finding uh, is that we've learned a lot in those 10 or 20 last years. And that, uh, again, it's not quite as dark as people might have thought, but again, they did collapse. There are hangers on, the Mycenaeans per se, are really, some of them are sticking around till about 1100 BC, but by 1000 BC, they're, they're basically gone. And yes, Greece is rebuilding. But what we're finding is that they're not completely gone, and there is continuity to a certain degree, there are far fewer people. We're not quite sure exactly how many died off in the collapse, um, but uh, Rhys Carpenter of Bryn Mawr uh, in the 1960s thought there were you know, a lot of people, and I've heard estimates of up to three quarters of the population died uh, after the collapse in Greece. Um, there's really no way to measure that, and I rather doubt it was three quarters of the population, but let's just say a significant amount uh, of people either moved or died. So that they're living in new places. And we find sites like Mycenae that are abandoned for a while. Tiryns, for example, keeps being inhabited again till 1100, but by 1000 it too um, is pretty much abandoned. Uh, Pylos also, Knossos, they're all eventually gonna be re-inhabited, but it'll take a while. Um, but what we're finding, for instance, uh, is that trade with the Near East actually does seem to continue. It's at a much lower level because there are fewer people there, but it does look like ships, Phoenician ships, for example, are coming to Greece, and uh, perhaps even Greek ships like from uh, Euboea or Evia are going to the Near East. Uh, and that is, for instance, how it looks like the Phoenician alphabet gets to Greece. But there again, that's a good example. I've actually just been reading about that. Um, until reasonably recently, it had always just been said, uh, the Phoenicians brought the alphabet to Greece in the eighth century, and then uh, it is used to write down all sorts of things. Now it's, um, there have always been voices saying, wait, 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 it was probably much earlier. Uh, and those voices are getting louder and more insistent. Uh, and so it may be that the Phoenicians have brought the alphabet to Greece already by the 11th century, which means if the Mycenaeans have collapsed in the 12th century, but the Phoenicians are like, hey, you lost your linear B, you don't know how to write it anymore, here's a new writing system, and they're doing it in the 11th century, then you've really only got about 100 years of so-called Dark Age. So in many ways, the Dark Age is just a matter of what we have accidentally found through archeology, span but I wouldn't be at all surprised if the alphabet and other ideas come along, even at this lower level of trade. So for me, Greece falls into this category. It's actually a, a double or a triple category. The Mycenaeans, yes, gone, collapsed, vanished, never really again. And yet, continuity, survivors of the Mycenaeans, who may no longer have self-identified as Mycenaeans, but they're still there and they pick it up and they rebuild. Uh, they are resilient, I guess you could say, and it takes them a while, but they uh, bring civilization back up. So that's why you've got continuity. That's why you've got the same gods and goddesses like Zeus and Hera and Athena and Poseidon in both the linear B tablets of the Mycenaeans and 
Greek religion when the archaic and classical period comes up. So there's definitely threads of continuity. Unlike other places, like for instance, Canaan, modern day Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, the Canaanites basically go away and a lot of their land is then inhabited by newcomers, Israelites, David and Solomon, king of Israel, king of Judah, uh, you know, all of that, that replaces the Canaanites. And you've also got the Philistines moving in. So you've got new groups there. But at the same time, the Phoenicians that we've been mentioning, Phoenicians are probably the survivors of the Canaanites that are living on the coast, what we would today consider mostly Lebanon, but also northern Israel and parts of Syria. So again, Canaanites, per se, gone. Most of their land taken over by new people, but some remnants, some survivors, renamed by the Greeks as the Phoenicians. So, you know, in my mind, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, it's almost two-pronged. Yes, there is a firm divide between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, and yet that divide is porous, and there are strands of continuity. In fact, I may have to put that in the book. I kind of like that. <laughs> yes. A, what would you call it? A porous divide? I yeah. guess that would be it. So, yeah, most of the world slams shut, and yet some gets through. Interesting. So and, this all kind of, um, I mean, there, I have so many questions for you. Uh, one thing with the Mycenaeans that I just keep thinking about, you know, they they lived in these lavish palaces, and that was all kind of abandoned. I, that seems... I don't, I don't understand that. I mean, do you, do you have any insight on sort of kind of what the day-to-day life, how that changed? Did people, they moved out of these cities and uh, and palaces and things and just went elsewhere? I mean, what, do we know much about that? Well, we don't know all that much about it. And yet we can infer a fair amount from archeology. span For instance, in terms of the palaces, you have to realize that that's, that's their 1%. Right? The vast majority of the Mycenaeans are living out on the land. They're farmers, they're agriculturists, they're the usual. They're you know, what you would expect. But you've got a king in each of these little kingdoms, right? Pylos, Tyrans, uh, Mycenae, Thebes. When this collapse hits, they're the ones that are affected. And so the 1% goes down. Now you have to realize too, that those are the people that either know how to write themselves or are employing scribes. The illiteracy is probably 99% back then. So if your top 1% goes away and your scribes go away, then suddenly nobody knows how to read or write. And that if it were a top-down economy, which it looks like from the linear B text, most of which are accounting text, right? This minute, many chariot wheels going out, this much bronze coming in, this many textiles, this many slave workers. If the palatial economy comes to a crashing halt because of whatever, drought, famine, invasion, earthquakes, then the kings are going down. And with that, you've got part of the systems collapse. Your centralized economy goes away. Centralized administration goes away. And you're left with the other 99% who are now basically leaderless, if you want to put it that way. 
and they're going to be, well, there's nobody to help maintain us, and all these crops are ruined because of the drought. Let's move elsewhere. And so we see them moving into places where they hadn't lived before. So I'm actually not at all surprised by this when you have such devastation. Uh, probably the first thing that's going to go away are your halves, the 1%. But the people that are going to survive are the farmers who are on the land and, you know, frequently with your invaders, like, you know, Alexander the Great that you've talked about in previous podcasts. You come in and, and, and he conquers a new land. The, the vast majority of people are unaffected. All they're going to now do is pay tribute to a new guy, but they're still farming their lands. I think that's what happens in Greece as well. So your palatial economy goes away. When it's finally replaced, when you get to the archaic and classical periods in Greece and you've got the city-states like Athens and Corinth and Megara and Sparta, you know, in some ways they're completely different from the Mycenaean palaces. And in some ways they're not different at all. It's a city and the land around it the difference as we get to classical Greece is in how it's ruled, right? Because the Greeks decided that they didn't actually like kings. And then they decided they didn't like tyrants. And then they decided they liked democracy. But that takes a while. But the actual center and the land, you've still got a palace or a city and the land around it. So, you know, I'm simplifying to a great degree, but you get the idea. Everyday people who are grounded in kind of the reality are less impacted than the people involved in politics and the, in that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I, would, I would agree, in part because I think they're more self-sufficient. Right. The uppers, they're, they're dependent on trade. They need their grain, their wheat, their wine, their olive oil. And they're also dependent on the villagers bringing their stuff. Yeah. But the villagers themselves are like, yeah, okay, so I'm not going to wear that nice purple you know, tunic, but I've yeah. still got the wine that we made. I've still got my olive oil, and here's, here comes the wheat. If they're not impacted by drought and famine, the everyday person is going to be pretty much all right. Okay, interesting. So, I want to touch. Um, I want to touch on the Trojan War. Uh, it seems like, based on these timelines, that what we think of may have been the Trojan War uh, happened around a similar time that uh, Mycenaean Greece collapsed. Um, obviously, there's a lot of controversy and controversy and questions around what the Trojan War really was and whether it was one historical event or many events or exaggerated or you know whatever it might be, what is, I'm curious about what your take is on, on the Trojan War and, and the way that it's depicted in the Iliad. All right, so that's, that's a big, 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 big topic, as you <laughs> know. Seconds. Yes, no, just... right. And actually, but it's near and dear to my heart because I got into archaeology uh, because when I was seven years old, I read a book on Heinrich Schliemann excavating Troy, looking right. for the Trojan War, right. And so now I've actually published back in 2013, I think, um, a little tiny book uh, from Oxford called Very Short Introduction, and it's called The Trojan War. And I go through uh, in just 35,000 words, that's all we were allowed, the whole evidence for and against the Trojan War as having happened. So I do think it happened. I think it took place. Uh, and in fact, in the revised edition of 1177 BC, I've put in some more about the Trojan War. Um, I think you've got two or three different strands of evidence. You've got Homer, 
as you mentioned. You got the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, and I do think that there's a kernel of truth at the basis of that. Um, I, I do think the Trojan War happened. I think it may be embellished um, as we understand it. It might kind of be like King Arthur, you know, where there, yeah, okay, there was a King Arthur, but he didn't have a round table and he didn't do everything that we think he did. But there was someone there. So same thing here. Um, with Homer, though, you have to be careful because he's living and writing uh, or, or doing his oral storytelling 500 years or so, 400 years after the battle. So, you know, is Homer really depicting the Bronze Age as it happened when the Trojan War was fought? Or is he talking more about his own time, the Iron Age, 800 BC? Or did the story get changed as it's passed down by word of mouth over the centuries and the, each storyteller changed it slightly to reflect their own time period a little bit more. So I actually think it's all of the above. I, I like the answer all of the above for many of these answers to these questions. Um, and so I think some of what Homer talks about is Bronze Age, but other is probably more likely Iron Age. Fortunately, we don't just have to depend on him. I already mentioned the Hittite records that talk about four different wars at a site they call Willusa. Uh, and in fact, one of the texts talks about a treaty that was signed with a guy named Alexandu of Willusa. Now, I don't know about you, but Alexandu of Willusa sounds an awful lot like Alexander of Ilios. And of course, those are the alternate names for Paris of Troy, according yeah. to Homer. So, um, so we've got that. We've also got another king that the Hittites mentioned, a guy... Um, uh, called Walmu, uh, who's living about 1200 BC. Uh, and that's neither here nor there, except that the Hittites say that they put him back on his throne after he had been deposed by an attacking force. So is the attacking force the Mycenaeans? And is Walmu basically King Priam? Now, as a, as a historian, I can't go there. I can't stretch it that much. But I would just say, huh, that's yeah. interesting. Right? You've got a similar situation. So you've got the Hittite text that might shed some circumstantial light on this. And then you've also got archaeology, right? You had Schliemann excavate there. You had Dorf, uh, uh, Dorfeld. You had uh, Blagan. You had Korfman. And now they've just found a lower city at Troy 15 years ago. It's now 10 to 15 times the size we thought. Um, and you could easily see that it would be worth fighting over because Troy, modern Hisselik, commands the entrance to the Black Sea. So it was a prize that was worth fighting over. Personally, I think that Helen, if she even ever did exist, is just an excuse. And in fact, if you watch the, the movie with Brad Pitt, from 2004. Yeah. And by the way, if you do, the director's cut is much better than okay. the just the regular one. Same with the Alexander movie. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. The Alexander movie, the director's cut was much better. Much better. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. So there's one scene in the Troy movie where Agamemnon says, this is not a war being fought for love. This is a war being fought as all other wars are for tribute, for goods, for loot, for booty, for power. And I, I stood up in the movie theater and yelled, yes, that's exactly right. So, and you have to realize too, Troy is in what I would call a contested periphery. 
it's on the edge of the Mycenaean empires, or or I don't know, I, you won't, I wouldn't call them empires because they're separate kingdoms, but say the Mycenaean sphere of influence is probably a better way to put it. Western Anatolia, Western Turkey, both the Minoans and Mycenaeans had been there for a couple hundred years. So the Western coast is in the Mycenaean sphere of influence. It's also in the Hittite sphere of influence. In fact, we know the Hittite king marched to what is now Western Turkey multiple times over the centuries. Numerous Hittite kings fought battles there. So Troy is in their sphere of influence also. And I actually wonder, I've suggested this in some of my publications, is the Trojan War, did Homer actually get it slightly wrong? And the Trojan War is actually a war between the Mycenaeans and the Hittites fighting over control of Troy. Or if they really are fighting Mycenaeans and Trojans, bear in mind they had been friendly and trading just as recently as Paris going over to visit Menelaus and Helen as a trading expedition. They had, we've got Mycenaean pottery at Troy before this so-called war breaks out. So if the Mycenaeans and Trojans really are directly fighting, is it a proxy war? Are they actually fighting the Hittites, but the Trojans are doing it on behalf of the Hittites? So again, a little dangerous to put modern stuff back then, but you know, we see proxy wars all the time today, right? They're going on even as we talk, right? Yeah. The main people are not fighting, but their proxies are. So I'm wondering if the Trojan War was a bit of a proxy war for the Mycenaeans and the Hittites. So long story short, I think it happened, but maybe not exactly in the way that Homer tells us, but there's all sorts of circumstantial evidence, literary and archeological, and from both sides, the one people whose voice we don't hear are the Trojans. Nothing written at Troy. There's just one little seal, a stamp seal, from after the level, the level after the Trojan War. So where are the archives that should be at Troy? I think they were there, but I think Schliemann and his men missed them and threw them out. I think they're in the back dirt piles because, you know, 1870, 1890, they were not yet realizing that they were writing Hittite and Akkadian and everything else, uh, including Linear B, on clay tablets. And I think Schliemann and his workmen might have just missed them, thought they were just hard nobules of, uh, nodules of dirt and threw them out. So let's go dig the back dirt piles of Troy, see if there's an archive there. So you, so you are, it sounds like you are optimistic that there is more that could come to light about some of this with current excavations or future excavations of that area. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I and mean, that's the brilliance of archaeology. There's always something more to find. Uh, I mean, there's a new set of excavations ongoing at Troy right now. Uh, I think it's uh, Rustam Aslan is doing it. And he just found uh, what he claims is a new city at Troy. Uh, sounds good to me. It's an older layer. It pushes the history of Troy back to 3,500 years, um, 3,500 BC, which is about 500 years older than we thought. But of course, we've already got Troy 1 through 9, courtesy of Schliemann. So he's called it Troy 0 because it's earlier than Troy 1. So yes, I think there's more to find. Uh, the lower city has only just begun to be excavated. So I think there's room for a lot more to be found. But I also need to emphasize, 
and this is where we can kind of circle back to where we started. Yeah. This Trojan War has to be seen in the context of the overall collapse of the late Bronze Age. It's being fought just as everybody else is collapsing, right? Trojan War is anywhere, I would say, between 1250 and 1180 BC, somewhere in there. We're not quite sure. And both Troy 6H and Troy 7A, which are the two big candidates, they both fit into that time period. 6H is destroyed by an earthquake. 7A is destroyed by human beings. The earthquake, that might be the Trojan horse. A guy named Schackermeyer in the 50s, a German scholar, said that the Trojan horse is a metaphor for the earthquake because Poseidon is the god of earthquakes and the horse is his animal. So it may have been Homer using a metaphor for the earthquake, which, okay, maybe that makes sense, but we know that 7A is destroyed by humans. There's earthquake, there, sorry, there are arrowheads in the walls. There are dead bodies in the streets. Either one fits perfectly into the systems collapse right. that is taking place about 1177. And in fact, it's been suggested that maybe that contributed to the collapse back home on the Greek mainland because, and again, this is reading a lot into it, but let's say for argument's sake that Agamemnon and everybody else, uh, the thousand ships are at Troy while everything bad is happening back on the Greek mainland. So being away fighting at Troy for 10 years and taking another 10 years to get back, if you believe the Odyssey, those were probably the two decades that was exactly the wrong time to be gone. And as a result, that helped contribute to the collapse of the Mycenaeans back home. Again, way too much speculation, reading way too much into it. But, you know, kind of fun to build up the pictures, if only to tear them down and to think what if, right? Yeah. And this is where contrapositive thinking comes in. What if they hadn't been gone? What if they had come home earlier? What if they had beaten Troy in the first year? Would the Mycenaeans have collapsed back home? But, you know, of course they did. So it's a what if question. Right. But, yeah. Well, and I, I know you only have a, a few more minutes here. Um, I, I think one question, I have just a couple quick questions. I mean, one one thing you mentioned Helen as possibly what may have been kind of some kind of personal uh, pretense for this larger conflict or something like that. Just, you know, possibility when I, one thing that I spent a little bit of time on was just, I got really interested in the mythology of Achilles and then started looking at, you know, with, with all this stuff that may be true about Troy and, you know, you start, your imagination runs wild about what could have actually been historical in the Iliad. When you right. look at these actual, personalities these figures like achilles agamemnon paris etc as an archaeologist and i know that you can't kind of de make definitive statements but just w when you see this stuff do you see achilles as a purely a mythological figure or do you think maybe you know who knows what what do you how do you approach that kind of thing so it's tough i mean i tell people all the time it's really hard to find specific people archaeologically speaking, right? You know, just go and try and find David and Solomon. Try and find Agamemnon. Try and find Achilles. You won't. You know, they've been searching for the tomb of Achilles for how long? Right. So, but having said that, yeah, I see them um, as potentially real people. Uh, the way I would kind of phrase it was, um, if Achilles specifically didn't exist, then somebody like Achilles existed, right? It, Homer's description works. It fits. 
Homer describes many times the way that they don they put on their armor, right? It's always in the same specific order. And the things that he mentions fit. Um, many of them fit the Bronze Age. Some of them fit the Iron Age, but um, uh, Achilles per se can't really pinpoint, but let's take somebody like Ajax. Ajax is obviously an earlier hero from like back in the 15th or 16th or even 17th centuries. The armor that he wears is a tower shield. It's described at one point like he throws his shield around so it protects his back. And it says it hits him on the neck and the ankles. Well, that's an earlier type of shield. We can see it on the frescoes at Akrotiri on Santorini, um, where the warriors are holding those, those tower shields. Even on the famous lion hunt dagger from Mycenae, one or two of the warriors has that type of shield. They've also got figure eight shields and other types of shields, but Ajax seems to be a hero from an earlier epic that has been inserted here. A lot of scholars have said that. There's even a whole German school called the Neo-Analysis School that talks about how Homer's epics are layered and use stuff from earlier periods. So um, going back to Achilles and Patroclus and all of them, and Agamemnon, and even Helen, you know, we haven't been able to find evidence for them per se, nor would I ever expect to, but people like them definitely existed. We see from the Linear B tablets that the setup, the economy, the rulership uh, of the Mycenaeans is set up to a certain degree as Homer would have described it, again, putting in that it transitioned over time. So um, I don't expect we'll ever find Achilles, but I have no doubt that somebody like Achilles certainly existed. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Because I, 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 I wrote kind of an in-depth article on just trying to locate his tomb, which is, again, if he's a mythological figure, it's a completely pointless kind of thing. But people right. have tried to do this and. It's a, it fascinated me for whatever reason, and I just didn't know if like is this a total waste of time? You know, it's it's something that I was just curious about, and I guess that's my last question for you. Kind of relates to the archaeology aspect, and you mentioned Henrik Schleilman, um, and kind of he made these breakthrough discoveries. But my understanding is he wasn't really a classically trained archaeologist. He also made a lot of mistakes, and people are still trying to rectify some of that and but at the same time he made legitimately huge discoveries and he inspired people and what are your what is that kind of thing does that go on a lot with kind of amateur archaeologists out there trying to trying to do stuff and meddle and things and what what are your thoughts on that and um well yeah. again that's that's a whole different <laughs> kettle of fish because yes we do have amateur enthusiasts still going around today. Not as many as we used to, um, but I would also say that Schliemann is actually in a slightly different category. Uh, while he is the man that we love to hate, that's for sure, um, you have to realize too that archaeology was in its infancy in those days. So I wrote a book a couple years ago called Three Stones Make a Wall the story of archaeology, and I put this kind of stuff in context because Schliemann, when he starts digging in about 1870, uh, looking for Troy, he's one of the earliest 
archaeologists at the time. There really wasn't a discipline of archaeology per se when he began. So of course he's going to make what we would now consider to be mistakes because um, he didn't know what he was doing because not that many people knew. But there were enough people around where they said, hey, you're going too fast. You're going through the layers. You're missing what you're looking for. So he was an enthusiastic amateur. He did make a lot of mistakes, but he was one of the luckiest people ever to put a trowel into the ground. He found all the right stuff for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> I mean, he completely misidentified stuff. He probably lied uh, and, and was just a scoundrel. You can actually see this. Lots of people have written about it. Um, for instance, uh, Priam's treasure, the famous Priam's treasure, right. was not Priam's. It's a thousand years too early. And it's probably not a treasure uh, that was found all in one place, like he said. It's probably stuff that he found over one or even two seasons of excavation that he pulled together and said, look, I found Priam's treasure. I mean, the guy is a scoundrel. Um, you can read about what he did in the United States before he retired uh, and then went to look for Troy. So, you know, you can't trust what he did. And yet he did find Troy. I mean, come on, he found Troy and he found Mycenae. But finding Mycenae wasn't as difficult. He basically went to the locals in the nearby village and said, I'm looking for Mycenae. And they're like, yeah, it's on the top of that hill. I'm like, oh, and he went up there and there's the lion gate still sticking out of the ground. So that wasn't quite as hard to find. And yet, when he started digging, he did find the shaft graves um, with these fabulous tombs uh, and multiple burials and all kinds of gold and everything. But even there, he made a mistake. He said, I found Agamemnon. I've gazed upon the face of Agamemnon. No, he was looking at a guy that lived 400 years before Agamemnon. It's not Agamemnon. It's probably the earliest kings and queens of Mycenae. And yet, he completely misidentified it, but he did find it. So you can see why he is the man that I love to hate, especially because he's the first archaeologist I ever read about when I was seven years old. It's one, so, of, the, yeah. it's one of the most incredible stories, yeah. you know, his, his biography. Um, so, well, thank you, Professor Klein, for talking to me. We've covered a lot. Uh, I know that there's a lot more detail um, in, in your books. Um, and so I will definitely include a link um, to the 1177 BC book um, on our website. And I can't wait to get it in the mail in the next few days. Um, is there anywhere else that people should go who want to follow your research or anything like that? Are you on social um, media much or website or anything? Yeah, I actually, I do have a website. I think it's just ehkline.com, cool. uh, which I maintain from time to time. Probably the easiest way to do it is just to Google me. Uh, and also to put in my name either on YouTube yeah. or in Amazon. There's an Amazon page, and all my books will come up. So awesome. I think in particular you'll be interested in, in the Trojan War one and 1177. I've got a little one also coming out in November called Digging Deeper, How Archaeology Actually Works. So okay. if your listeners want to know how do we know where to dig and how do we actually dig, and the one I get a lot, uh, how do you know how old that is? Because you weren't alive back then. I'm right. like, oh, okay, radiocarbon dating and all that. So little book for just 10 bucks coming out in November. So well, lots we'll of stuff. I tend, 
Yeah, I'll yeah, check I out both of those. Yes, I think you would like it, uh, and, and some of your listeners would too. Uh, I tend to write a lot for the general public because I love archaeology and I'm excited by it, and I know a lot of people are as well. So I try and make a lot of what I do accessible to the general public, and that's what you'll find like up on Amazon. But I also try and do it with the lectures like the one you watched, and then you know podcasts like you. Um, and I have to say, by the way, kudos to you for doing this. Uh, you are at the front lines. You are at the intersection. Uh, I've, I've looked at some of the ones you've done before and that I presume you will do in the future. And so you are bringing the, the knowledge to the general public by doing this. So uh, my hat is off to you. It's not easy to do it. And we are grateful. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you. I've sort of discovered this passion of mine in the last few years. And it's just been an awesome way to talk to people like you and just experts and archaeologists, historians. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's my pleasure, and uh, I can't wait to check out your other books as well. Um, thank you, Professor Klein. Um, I'll send you a link when we put up these articles on our website and hope we can talk again one day. That sounds good. I'd love to do that. In the meantime, good luck. Thank you. Thank you to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. As always, you can find the links to the different things we talked about and many more articles about the mysteries of the ancient world at ancientheroes.net. Talk to you soon.